This is High Stakes from Gerard Phillips, Kate and Hancock. Hey, this is David Schiffer, and just a quick note before we get started that everything we talk about today uh, revolves around the newest volume of The Art of Change, which is out now. We look at, as you will find out, mergers and acquisitions and partnerships, so be sure to check that out. We talk to folks from across the industry, healthcare executives on both the hospital and health system and, and health services side of things, as well as a lot of advisors who work with different healthcare providers uh, through different types of transactions. So to learn more about that and to read the entire volume, go to aoc.gerardinc.com. That's aoc.gerardinc.com. Welcome back to Jay Insights on the High Stakes Podcast. I'm David Schifrin here once again with David Gerard, our CEO, talking about mergers, acquisitions, transactions, partnerships, deals, and every other term. Um, That's right. So David, you mentioned a study, a couple of studies that came out recently, one by Kaufman Hall, one by Chartis, looking at just the incredible financial effects of the pandemic on our healthcare system, on healthcare providers. And thinking about how there's some discrepancies uh, in terms of the need to run just day-to-day operations, but also prepare for the future to be able to scale, to be able to maintain sort of that momentum just through the sheer weight of the organization. So uh, talk a little bit about those studies and and explain what you're thinking about. Yeah, it's almost the definition of a a classic challenging moment for for a business leader in which resources are strapped, but the opportunity could be really significant. So as you do your risk analysis, how do you how do you weigh different factors to know how to prepare for the future, particularly when the future is so uncertain right now? And you're right, David. There, there was a couple of studies that have just come out this week that I think are add color to the art of change as it relates to mergers and acquisitions and consolidations. I think you found as you talk to our friends and clients uh, across the industry that there's there is an expectation that consolidation will continue, if not accelerate during this era, whatever we call this era, the COVID era, the pandemic era. And in fact, I, I agree with a lot of the voices that, that say that this will serve only to accelerate the consolidation that was already naturally occurring. We find that true also in telehealth and other sort of evolutionary events that were occurring in healthcare. It's going to happen in the, in the consolidation industry as well, short of the FTC jumping in and, and, and putting their foot down. But sure. My expectation is the FTC won't be able to move fast as, as fast as some of these deals will be as, as they come together. But the interest that I have in, in the, some of the studies that just came out is they are revealing of the significance of the financial distress um, that have visit, been visited on the health systems as they have moved through the pandemic and will continue to. The Chartist Group did a survey of about 100 very senior leaders at major healthcare systems around the country. And they found that 40% of these leaders expected to take up to a year to get back to pre-COVID patient volumes. So if a couple of months ago we were saying in a couple of months, we'd be back and patients would be returning and it would happen maybe in a couple of stages, but certainly by December, we'd be back to the volumes that we were experiencing. Now, Eight weeks later, six weeks later, we're looking at July of 2021 to be returning to those volumes. So does that, uh, yeah, go ahead. real quick, because I know there's been some other 
studies or at least some anecdotes suggesting that there are hospitals and health systems that have pretty much returned to or close to, you know, sitting around 90%. So in light of this larger data set, um, are those outliers? Is, is it a regional issue? What's the, what's the discrepancy there? Well, I haven't seen the details of the study, so I'm not sure. I'll tell you what I suspect. I suspect it is a mixed bag. That some places are, are going to be more advanced than others. And I also suspect that as we move through waves of sort of COVID surges, that's going to go up and down and up and down. I, I think clearly one of, the, one of the things that we're seeing in these numbers is that it's unpredictable, that they're, they're not counting on it. And so they're planning on a, a much slower return. If it comes back quicker, that's great. But the smart move, particularly for conservative business leaders and the CFOs that run health systems are generally very, very conservative. It's going to take a, take a longer time to get back. Um, and there's, there's a lot there in the Chartist Group research, and I, I recommend it. The other report um, that, is, that adds color in its own ways comes from the American Hospital Association. Um, it reports that 51% of America's hospitals will have negative margins by the end of the year without additional federal support. And the research was conducted by the folks at Kaufman Hall, and it lays out two scenarios, an optimistic scenario and a less than optimistic scenario. And they weight 40% to the optimistic and 60% to the negative scenario. And so under an optimistic scenario, hospitals' median margins would be negative one this year, minus one margin. And under the less optimistic scenario, the margin would be negative 11 or lower. Those are significant numbers. We're talking billions of dollars here that are not going to be recoverable. And as fast as hospitals can cut, they can't cut their way to those kind of margins, even even with the loss of jobs or, or shutting down services. Now, this report is is part of a plea by the American Hospital Association to the federal government for additional funding. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's part of a funding discussion. And it, it says without the previous funding that has just flown through the health systems that margins would be down 15%, negative 15% uh, for the year. So I know that's part of the discussion. But you can't look at these numbers and and not see strapped healthcare everywhere, uh, which means healthcare will be moving to sort of its essential natures that'll protect be protecting its core, and those ancillary things will be will be sliding away. So this conversation, I think, is really relevant to the conversation that we're having about mergers and acquisitions and growth, because we we see in the interviews you and others have conducted that Warner Thomas, for example, sees the benefit of scale, right, um, in a larger organization. And you can't look around the industry without realizing that those that have seemed to be faring the best through this pandemic are those organizations that have a pretty big platform. Right, that have scale, that have connections, that have a network, that have their their arms out throughout their community and, and almost an integrated system. What a great model that is for the future. And if you were if you were thinking, I need to plan for the future, I need to protect myself against the next pandemic, and I need to advance care into the community and that capitated care and population health is going to be the future of care, then I'm also going to need scale and a and a broad net then now is the time to get it if I don't have it. So now's the time to acquire. Now's the time to buy. Now's the time to use some of the resources that I have, some of the reserves that I have 
to um, get things that I, that I don't have. And of course, if you're part of a struggling system, if you're going to be looking for a partner, now's the time to be looking for a partner so you can sustain your mission and survive. Yeah, talk a little bit. Oh, I do want to get into the the distressed hospital, the the struggling system aspect of this. But talk a little bit more about the resources and you know the debt mechanisms, whatever it is, to fund an acquisition for the. Yeah, so you, if you, I mean, a healthy system may have reserves that it can that it can draw on. It may have the ability to uh, increase its debt to go um, after these acquisitions. A number of these acquisitions can can be occurred with no really very little exchange of capital, just a commitment for investments to come in the future. So the organizations just agree to join each other and combine their, 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 their P&L. The, the challenge here, I, I think, for a number of organizations is less the, the financial risk of it than the political and cultural risk of it. Because if, if, if AHA is now going to the federal government and says the hospitals need more money to survive, and I think that's absolutely true, it's hard to be doing that, and it's hard to be laying off staff and furloughing your nurses and other uh, people in your organizations and shutting down services, and at the same time, acquiring another hospital or expanding your, your platform. It may be exactly the right thing to do as a mission-driven business person who's looking at ensuring the stability of your organization in the future. But politically, when I'm talking about internal politics and union politics and government relations politics, of course, it can be a challenge. Yeah. And this, it's, it's interesting because this goes to something that our, our colleague Isaac Squires talks about uh, quite frequently, and it's reflected in The Art of Change, where everyone is paying very close attention to healthcare. Has been, we would argue, for the last year or two, I and mean, we were talking about the scrutiny that providers are, are under all throughout 2019, and that's increased. And there's a lot more healthcare literacy taking place today, I think. At the same time, yeah. and, and Isaac, again, this is all credit to Isaac for this idea, is that people still don't have all the information. There is so much they, nuance. They don't have all the information. And the danger is assuming that they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, even those people that you, you think might, because they live in it every day, like physicians and nurses. And if you're, if you're in administration, you, you may make the mistake of just assuming that because they're in the halls and they see the the hell you're going through and how challenging it is, that there would be recognition and appreciation of the financial challenges that translate to and the opportunities that you have to pursue and the, ex and the give and take, the exchanges that, that you have to make as a leader. And it's a, it's a mistake to assume that because your physicians and, and nurses are focused really hard on being great physicians and great nurses. They're not focused on running a great health system like administration is. So if you if you think about where that literacy needs to happen first, it needs to happen inside the house and then outside the house. It, uh, it's a great point that Isaac um, Isaac makes, and I think it's I think it's dead on. What will kill us here in our industry if we assume our frankly our, assume our own credibility and I assume knowledge that doesn't exist. And some of that is, in this case, is around where the funds are coming from, how it's earmarked, the different mechanisms. So there is a different pool for day-to-day -day operations versus long-term strategic growth and things like that. And it doesn't feel right. It's like a university endowment where if, if, if something is earmarked for art and landscaping, you can't use it for the new athletic center. No, and... 
And David, it's the same conversation I feel like we've been having since we've started these these conversations about transparency, about transparency for hospitals and health systems. We've had very similar conversations when it comes to why does care cost what it costs and why are bills sort of constructed and charge what they charge. And the answer traditionally been the hospital system has been to shrug and go, hey, it's complicated. And what are you going to do? That is not going to fly anymore. It doesn't fly with billing anymore. And it's not going to fly in these conversations because there are reserves. There are endowments. There are significant funds that are that are at play here. And it's hard when when you have a population with such significant unemployment that are just trying to get by and when they see the hundreds of millions of dollars in stimulus money is being invested, it is not a, a layup for them to understand A plus B plus C get you where you want to go. You've got, you've got to explain it. You've got to have a story and you've got to be proactive about it because what I'm sure is going to happen is someone else is going to tell a story and as a hospital health system, you're not going to like it. So if you're not playing, um, you, you'll be played against. Let's flip it around, David, and talk about those distressed hospitals who don't have the reserves. And, and so the, the story that they need to sell is one of, of survival. Yeah. The, the story is one of survival. But you can, have a, you can have a story about survival and you can have a story about smart development of care in your community. The opportunity for these systems is to move while they can still move before they slide into uh, the arms of a, of a bankruptcy court or others who will dictate the future of the delivery of care in that community and, and be proactive in searching for a partner, finding a partner, laying out the criteria. This is what we expect from a partner. This is what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and, and taking action while there's action to be taken. And given, frankly, what we're seeing in the market, the, the sooner organizations that are in that position can move, the better. The, the longer you wait, the weaker your position, the fewer your options that you're going to have, and you don't want to be in that position. Okay, so a couple more things that I want to touch on, David. One is we, we've we've heard and we've seen uh, from our friends across the industry that there are quite a number of deals that were on the table prior to the pandemic are now back on, or at least you know the conversations have reopened. Um, yeah. Have those conversations changed? Is the equation different? Uh, what's happening, you know, for these people who are are, are moving ahead as planned? I'm, I'm confident the conversation has changed. The changes will vary depending on the opportunity, of course. But some of the some of the changes may be related to valuation. Can I still value value you as an organization, and should I still value you as an organization as I did before? And I think it will also change in terms of the capital investments that I will be making in the acquiring organization or the acquired organization going forward. It may have been, you know, four or five months ago that the future capital investments were going to be a medical office building and expansion to a wing of the hospital or other capital improvements in the facility. It may now be that those capital improvements are to build a network of clinics or to really improve and modernize the emergency room. Any number of changes may be made that reflect what the new future is now, now that we have a clinic-based population health, telehealth-driven industry. If we believe that's the direction you're going, you're going to see capital investments shift in that direction. I also think you'll, you'll find that M&As uh, or mergers and acquisition opportunities will proceed forward, but they may proceed 
a little more slowly, except when there's a horse race to be the first one in to get a deal done. Uh, cash is still king. And in, until we're through whatever that means through the pandemic, I think a number of systems will pursue merger conversations and you know, sort of engage in, in fulsome dialogue to understand the strategies and the financial risks and the opportunities. But they may hold on to their cash into the first or second quarter of next year until there's a little more confident that the seas are calm and they can feel more comfortable letting go of that money. You mentioned telehealth and clinics. And so we're, we've also been having conversations with uh, folks on the PE and the health services side, the private yeah. the private funding. And so while early in the conversation, you said, you know, you can't cut your way to success in, in a situation like this, increasing efficiency is going to go hand in hand with appropriate levels of scale, right? So I think there's a lot yes. of opportunity to create some partnerships um, with health services companies who can help streamline some of those operations and at least, you know, help you kind of work around the edges. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, and we talked earlier about hospitals moving to their core, doing what they do exceptionally well and letting others do what they do exceptionally well. And I mean, David, I, I think partnership is the magic word. I think you just said it. There'll, there'll be alliances and partnerships and joint ventures where best in class can partners with best in class to create an efficient machine instead of folks who are trying to but shouldn't do or can't do the best they realize that that is that is not a place to invest their capital going forward so i, I would expect a lot of that and the flip side of that if, if we're talking about risk analysis is if for health systems others who don't pursue partnerships they have to watch their back all the time because other investment opportunities in the community may be pursued by people who are happy to do it by themselves I mean, private equity bank physician organizations that are looking to roll up physicians or uh, create their own network, you know, so they can go talk to Optum or they can go talk to the large healthcare system as a block is an opportunity um, as well. So when we think about the pressures to move into M&A, there's, there's the opportunity for scale, which is an offensive pressure. And then there's the defensive pressure is I got to I got to I got to get this one before somebody else does. So as we're talking here, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that it, it, it seems like there's there's sort of multiple angles, multiple types of organizations, and really because of that, multiple attitudes, right? We've got the hospitals that are in a relatively, anyway, secure position, or at least a somewhat better position. We've got the distressed hospitals that are struggling to keep their doors open. We've got privately backed healthcare organizations who are looking to scale, get into different partnerships, and, and then the private money is looking to deploy capital in, in different ways. So it's like, again, there's there's sort of these different attitudes, these different ideas around and, and experiences around what's happening. I think it's exactly right. I think it's it's, it's hard in these conversations to talk about the healthcare industry as if it was one experience that everyone is having universally across the country and depending on their financial structure or their purpose. I think it's a very much a mixed bag where you're going to have winners and losers, which is, I hate that kind of language, but you're going to have folks who are up and folks who are down. You're going to have folks, particularly in the PE world, who who don't have a lot of historic baggage or obligations and responsibilities, who have the ability just to move, move, move. So it's all opportunity uh, for them and just for risk analysis there. And it's others who are who are going to be evaluating smart risks that they can make and others who feel like they've served the community well for 100 years, but it's time to make a difference. It's time to make a change uh, for the good of their mission. 
Okay, so let's uh, let's bring it home with some some practical tips as we like to do. You talked uh, already about transparency and telling the story, being proactive in that, um, regardless of what the situation is. What are some other steps, you know, generally as possible? What else do leaders need to be? You, doing? you hit one of the most important points, and I'll I'll come back to it again, which is um, everything we're talking about here is is actually if you pull back the curtain is really complicated. There's a whole bunch of funding sources. There's a whole bunch of mechanisms that activate this kind of debt opportunity or that kind of funding source. And it's at the local level, the state level, the federal level. And there's things you can do with that money and can't do with that money. Capturing all of that into a story that you can tell. You can, you can tell in the community that your board can tell, but also you can tell at the nurse's station, right, or in the physician lounge is hugely important. Even if you recognize that you're going to be building this story over the next year, capturing that in a way that somebody can go home and say, let me tell you what's going on. Here's why, here's how this works. I, I think is fundamentally important because what we're, what we're talking about here is sort of building a little coalition. So when you go to the well, to the state for that money or to the organization to buy that hospital, you've built that foundation. So starting at home with that simple, not simple, that clear and direct and transparent story, I think is an important step. 